At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would now, please take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to 2 Peter chapter number 3. 2 Peter chapter number 3. And if you've been with us in our study of 2 Peter 3, you will know that the thrust of 2 Peter 3 is around biblical prophecy and the events of the end times. And Peter acknowledges in this chapter that there are cynics and there are scoffers out there who when it comes to biblical prophecy and the events of the end times, they would say, that's silly, that's frivolous, that's just end times superstitious stuff. But the truth is that God is orchestrating history. He is large and he is in charge. You know, the highest concentration of biblical prophecy in the New Testament is found in the book of Revelation. And I want you to notice what it says in a couple of places there. In the very first verse of the book of the Revelation, it describes it this way, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which, notice that next word, must soon take place. And then in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, there's a voice from heaven and it says, I will show you what must take place what has to happen because God is large and in charge. And Scripture gives us a sneak preview of future events. And using baseball terminology, the Scripture is batting 1,000. The Scripture has 100% accuracy when it comes to previewing future events. Now, a lot of times, our view in the world is things are happening all around us. We tend to think, well, things are falling apart. In reality, things are just falling into place according to God's plan. Now, today, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, a message I have entitled, The End Ahead. And I would like to read with verse 10 down through verse 13, invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading. Peter writes and he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people, rather, let's go back to verse 10. I I jumped ahead of verse, okay? Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now we're ready for verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, If you take those four verses, verse 10 down through verse 13, I think they break into three parts. We have the day of the Lord in verse 10. We have our reality check in verses 11 and 12. 
And then we have God's great promise in verse 13. So we're going to begin by looking first at the day of the Lord there in verse 10. Now, notice how the verse begins. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, I want to pause for just a moment here, and I want to clarify some things about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is actually a technical term. It is used four times in the New Testament here in 2 Peter 3, but also in Acts 2.20, and also in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, and in 2 Thessalonians 2.2. So let's just clarify a little bit about the day of the Lord. The first thing I want you to notice is that it is mentioned also in the Old Testament. It is mentioned also in the Old Testament. And I want to look at a, a little bit of an extended passage from the book of Isaiah in chapter 13, verses 6 to 11, where it talks about the day of the Lord. Notice what Isaiah says. He says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. It goes on to say, they will look aghast at one another in the day of the Lord. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. This is some amazing stuff, startling stuff. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark At its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And he goes on to say, I will punish the world. This is God speaking for evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. See, the Old Testament also talks about the day of the Lord. Another passage we could look at comes from Zephaniah, where Zephaniah says of the day of the Lord, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom. So we're just clarifying a little bit about the day of the Lord. We have seen that it is mentioned in the Old Testament. Secondly, I want us to see that the day of the Lord is actually an era of time. You know, what's really interesting is that Hebrew and Greek are no different really than English because in our languages, you can use the word day and sometimes it refers to an era. Like if I were to say to you, I was just reflecting back on the day of my youth. I'm not talking about a single day, talking about an era of my youth. Or as we might say in Oklahoma, You remember the day of the cowboy? Well, we're not talking about there being one cowboy or or one day. We're talking about an era in Oklahoma, we know more than 100 years ago, when it was the era of the day of the cowboy. Now, as we examine the passages that address the day of the Lord, one of the things we discover is it's not just a day, it is a period. The third thing we want to notice by way of clarification is that the day of the Lord is not only an era of time, it has two phases to it. It has a phase of judgment 
and it has a phase of blessing. And you can just see this when you look at the passages. For example, let's look at a passage from Joel chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 17 ultimately. But in chapter 3 of Joel, verses 14 to 16, it's emphasizing the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. Notice the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. That's the judgment phase. But the very next verse in Joel talks about the blessing phase of the day of the Lord. Then on the day of the Lord, During that era, you will know that I am the Lord your God, so Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and a spring will go forth out from the house of the Lord. So you have this idea. It is an era of time, and there's a judgment phase and a blessing phase, and a Further way that we could unpack that, putting a bunch of passages together, is the judgment phase really represents what we call the tribulation period, and that's a seven-year period. And then the blessing phase encompasses the millennial kingdom, which goes for a thousand years. Now, the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom, the judgment phase and the blessing phase, culminate or they end with the destruction of the heavens and the earth and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And Peter's going to talk about that some here in chapter 3. But you see a lot of this put together in much more detail in the book of Revelation, which Pastor Mark is taking us through. But in Revelation from chapter 6 to 21, you have this judgment phase and then you have the blessing phase being described in detail in those situations. So let's go back to 2 Peter 3.10. And notice it says there that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, I want you to notice something that might be easy to miss in English when it says the day of the Lord will come. In the original language, that verb will come is very emphatic. It is very, very strong. Peter's saying the day of the Lord will come. Count on it, he's saying. Don't doubt it for a minute. And then he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. How does a thief come? Well, a thief comes in a sudden, abrupt, without an announcement mode. You know, if a thief was going to hit my house, Here's what he would not do. He would not call my cell phone. Hey, Bruce, you don't really know me, but I just want you to know that on Thursday night, about 2 a.m., I am going to break into your house. A thief doesn't do it that way. When someone comes like a thief, it's sudden, it's abrupt, and it is without warning. The day of the Lord's coming will be a little bit like an earthquake coming. Most of us are aware of the San Andreas Fault Zone in California, but many of us don't even know about 
the fault zone that's in the middle part of the United States. It's called the New Madrid Fault Zone. And the New Madrid Fault Zone is six times larger than the San Andreas Fault Zone in California. It encompasses parts of Arkansas and Tennessee and Mississippi and Missouri and Kentucky and Illinois. And some of you might be thinking, I never heard of the New Madrid Fault Zone. Well, if you lived in the 1800s, in the early part of the 1800s, you knew about the New Madrid Fault Zone. You know, the great San Francisco earthquake happened in 1906. It registered 7.9 on the Richter, the Richter scale. On December the 11th, 1811, in the New Madrid Fault Zone, there was an earthquake that registered 8.6 on the Richter scale. And less than two months later, in February of 1812, there was another earthquake in the New Madrid zone that registered 8.8 on the Richter scale. And when those earthquakes happened in the New Madrid fault zone, many small towns were completely destroyed. There were huge landslides that happened. There were 100-foot fissures that opened up in the earth, spewing out sulfur. The second one, in February of 1812, woke up Dolly Madison in Washington, D.C., a 1,000 miles away. It rang church bells in Boston. And there were small islands that existed in the Mississippi River that just disappeared when that earthquake happened. There was, in that second earthquake, a river tsunami that occurred where the Mississippi River flowed backwards to the north for several hours. It was an event that was sudden and abrupt and without announcement. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, Bruce. Can't we sometimes know that an earthquake could be near or could be close? Aren't there some signs that an earthquake might be ready to happen? And I think sometimes a seismometer can tell us and warn us about seismic tension that happens. But the event is still going to be sudden, abrupt, and without an announcement. Well, here's another question. Are there any signs that the day of the Lord could be near? And there are a number of answers we could give to that question. For example, In the book of Daniel, we know that in the time of the day of the Lord, there is going to be present a revived Roman Empire. There's going to be sort of a new empire that emerges out of the geography of Rome. And it could very well be that the the EU that we see today is a forerunner of that final form. We know from the book of Revelation that the Antichrist is going to have to be able to control the selling and the buying of people worldwide. Well, for many generations, that was never even a possibility, but now we have the technology for someone to control everybody around the world and what they buy and sell. So those could be another sign that the day of the Lord is near. There are more that we could explore, but what I really want to emphasize is what I call the super sign, that the day of the Lord could be near. And the super sign is the nation of Israel existing back in their land. 
the nation of Israel existing back in their land. You know, what happened to the Jews is unprecedented in human history, but it is exactly what biblical prophecy predicted would happen. See, when you look at what Jesus has to say about the end times, the apostle John, what Daniel has to say, what Zechariah and many more of the prophets have to say, they picture Israel as a nation in the time of the day of the Lord as being back in the land as a national entity. Now, that, that's amazing when you think about it. I mean, Israel was conquered by Egypt, conquered by Assyria, conquered by Babylon, conquered by the Medes and Persians, conquered by Greece, conquered by the Romans. And then in 70 AD, the nation disappeared and the Jews and the people of Israel were scattered all around the world. And by the way, the Jews are the only exiled people in all of human history who remained a distinct people despite being scattered for more than 2,000 years, 20 centuries, into 70 different countries. But that's exactly what the Bible would say. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Ezekiel 34, 13, the Lord, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them back into their own land. This is truly an amazing story. You know that in the late 1800s, there were just a few thousand Jews who'd made their way back to their former land. In 1948, when the UN officially recognized Israel as a nation, there were 650,000 Jews who were there. And in 2021, there were now 7 million Jews who live in the land of Israel. There are more Jews in Israel today than there were when Jesus was on the earth. Now, this is all forecast by God to start with a physical return to the land of Israel, but at the second coming, there's also going to be a spiritual return to the true Messiah. We're not there yet. There's this beginning of this physical return but there's eventually going to be a spiritual return also. But the super sign that the day of the Lord could be near is that the nation of Israel exists back in their land because when the day of the Lord is described, that's where we see them. They are back as a nation. Now, the event of the day of the Lord is still gonna be sudden and abrupt without announcement. We might know that it's near, but we don't really know when it would occur. It will be sudden, abrupt, and without announcement. Now go back to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Notice it says there that the heavens will pass away. Literally, the original language means it's going to go away. It's going to pass away. It's going to go away with a roar, it says. This is the only time in Scripture this word appears. It's describing a rushing, crashing, terrifying sound. And then I want us to look at in verse 10, a couple of phrases that are in verse 10 
that are translated differently by our major translations. And you may have already noticed that as I was reading from the New American Standard. So let's look at these, these phrases. First of all, the elements will be destroyed is what the New American Standard says. The ESV says the heavenly bodies will be destroyed. A little bit of a different way of translating things. And so you look at that and you think, well, why do they say different things there? Well, the word in the original is the word for elements. And what the New American Standard decided to do is to not try to determine what the elements are. The ESV, though, decided to choose a potential option for what the elements are. And one possibility is that the elements, it's a very true possibility, would be a reference to the sun, the moon, the stars, and the constellations. And so, therefore, the translators, the scholars for the ESV, decided to to basically choose one of the options of what the elements referred to, and they translated it, the heavenly bodies, referring again to the sun, the moon, the stars, and the constellations. But in the New American Standard, they chose not to translate. In fact, the New King James and the NIV are the same way. They just say the elements will be destroyed. So another, there's a lot of different options because we don't really know what he was referring to when he said the elements, but another option would be it was describing the building blocks of matter. In verse 10, that verb that's translated destroyed is a word in the original language that just means to be loosed. It could be translated, the elements will be disintegrating. They will dissolve. Another possible interpretation of the elements is a description of the atomic level of life, the neutrons, the protons, the electrons, that level of life. And, you know, it's always made people wonder, what holds those things together? And if that's the reference of the elements, we know what holds them together. Scripture tells us that. It tells us that Jesus, Hebrews 1.4, upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17, in him, Jesus, all things hold together. It's Jesus holding together even the elementary elements of our world together. So if, when he talks about the elements, it is a description of the breakdown of matter, it's really describing more of an implosion than an explosion. And the product of all of that is intense heat. Someone mentioned to me at the end of the first service, well, that's really what uh, nuclear activity is about. It's just the destruction and the breakdown of matter. Now, as I said, there's a couple of phrases that are translated a little differently in our Bibles, depending upon which translation you have. The second phrase I want us to look at is the New American Standard and the New King James Version say the earth and its works will be burned up. The ESV and the NIV say the earth and its works will be exposed. So what is really going on here? What's happening? Now, most of us who've been around the church for a while understand that when we talk about the word of God being without error, we're talking about the word of God in its original form. But we don't have the original. We have manuscripts, and sometimes the manuscripts read a little bit differently. 
And then people get worried, like, well, how many of those variations are there? Well, when you look at the New Testament, you take all the variations in the manuscripts, they make up about half of a page, so it's not a lot. It's nothing that affects any major doctrine. But we have one of those illustrations of a variation because the manuscripts have different verbs in them. That's why one set of manuscripts say the earth and its works will be burned up. Another set of manuscripts say the earth and its works will be exposed. And then you say to me, Bruce, which one is right? And I say to you, I don't know. I really don't know which one is right. I don't understand for sure. But here's what I think. If the original had the verb burned up, what does it mean the earth and its works will be burned up? I think the idea would be that the achievements of man, the great cities, all the majestic elements of this world are going to be burned up. If the original used the verb be exposed, what does that really mean? Well, the idea there would be that the earth and its works, the things that are done on earth, are going to be exposed, they're going to be uncovered, exposed to judgment. The deeds done on the earth will be exposed to judgment. So I just go through all that because I don't like it when people look at different versions and they see a different verb and they get confused. Well, that's really the answer to it all. Well, now I want you to look down to verse 12. It kind of carries on with this idea here where it says, the heavens will be destroyed by burning. That's that same verb that means to loose or dissolve. The earth will be, the heavens will be destroyed by fire and by burning. You know, we live in an era where there's an awful lot of discussion about global warming and people have all kinds of different ideas about this. Well, you have global warming, but here, Second Peter is talking about global burning. And he says the elements in verse 12, the same word that was used in verse 10, will melt with intense heat. What does this really all mean? Well, we need to remind ourselves that this universe is all we've ever known, right? But this universe is not permanent. But the good news is God is permanent. And so as we look at these verses, we have the day of the Lord in verse 10. The second thing we want to look at is our reality check in verses 11 and 12. Notice how verse 11 begins. Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, same verb we've seen before, to loose or to dissolve, he asks this question. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, when we first read that in English, we might think he's saying, you know, what sort of people should you sort of, maybe should it be, you know, like it's, it's an optional thing. But that's not the way the original is worded. What sort of people is it necessary for us to be is really what it says. What sort of people must we be as followers of Jesus? And you notice he goes on to say, what sort of people should we be, necessary to be, must we be? And then he says in verse 11, first, in holy conduct. Now, you can't really see this in English, and we can't really translate it the right way from the original, but this phrase, in holy conduct, is plural in the original. What sort of people is it necessary must we be in holy conducts? See, we, we, we don't translate that well in English. 
But I think what he's referring to here is our external actions. What sort of people is it necessary must we be in our external actions? And then he says also in godliness, which again, in the original is plural. We don't talk this way in English. Uh, what is it necessary to be in godlinesses? See how we can't really translate it that way. I think the second term is referring to our practical attitudes that we have. What is it necessary? What must we be in our eternal, or rather external actions and our practical attitudes? Now, it's important for us to remember something, men and women. I mean, we know this, but we don't often operate in a daily awareness of it. Our citizenship as followers of Jesus is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 tells us that. We are aliens. 1 Peter 2.11 tells us that. A lot of talk right now about aliens and people coming in our country and you know, who has residency and who is a non-resident and so forth. We are spiritual aliens. We're non-residents. We're transients here. Now, we are also high-ranking ambassadors. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, towards the end, tells us that. But I think here's the thrust of what Peter is communicating to you and to me. Because our citizenship is in heaven, because we are aliens, because we are non-residents here, because we are transients here, and because we are high-ranking ambassadors, we should be living by the standards of our true homeland. Now, I think it's sad that sometimes followers of Jesus become prophecy junkies. They become overtly riveted onto prophetic truths and then start to overlook other parts of Scripture. They often overlook the practical impact that prophecy is to have on our life. Warren Wiersbe did a great job of just expressing this. He says, It is unfortunate when people run from one prophetic conference to another filling their notebooks, marking their Bibles, drawing their charts. And here comes the key part. And yet not living their lives to the glory of God. God has given us prophetic truth, men and women, not merely for our information, but rather for spiritual motivation. And he's gonna expand on that a little more as he ends chapter three. What? sort of people must we be in our external actions and in our attitudes? And then he says in verse 12, looking for, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We are to be anticipating. We are to have our eyes on what is coming in the future. Don't lose sight of it. And then he talks about how we can be hastening the coming of the day of God. How do we do that? I mean, isn't God the one who is large and in charge? Isn't he the one who is writing out history before it happens? So how do you and how do I hasten the day of the Lord? Well, we can do what Jesus taught us to do. He taught us to pray, right? He said, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we can hasten the day by praying that way. In fact, the early church did this very thing. 
You know, it's kind of interesting to me when you get to Revelation 8, which Pastor Mark will get us there, but you have a scene in heaven and you have the prayers of the saints that are there on a golden altar in heaven. Why are they there? Because they are significant to God. God responds to the prayers of the saints. And so we see that happening in the early church. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, you have the word maranatha. And that is a word that the believers would often say to one another. Maranatha, it is really a prayer. Lord, come. Lord, come. And then in Revelation 22 and verse 20, when the apostle John is closing his book, he says this, it's a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we can hasten the day by saying to one another and to God, Maranatha, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. As we said, we were going to do three things. We're going to look at the day of the Lord. We're going to look at our reality check. Lastly, we want to look at God's great promise in verse 13. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are looking ahead to a whole new universe. And that whole new universe is going to be so grand. Isaiah says this of it in 65, 17. The former universe will not be remembered nor come to mind. It's going to be that grand. And it's going to be a universe, as it says in verse 13, in which righteousness dwells. I like the way the Net Bible translates it. It's a place, a universe in which righteousness truly resides. God is going to, with his righteousness, permanently settle in there. There'll be no more suffering, no more sadness, no more injustice, no more grief. They are forever banished. And you can go to Revelation chapter 21 and read a little more detail about that. Now, having looked at all of these verses, you know, I want to say Selah. Selah was a word that was used in the book of Psalms and various Psalms. And the idea of Selah was as things were being taught and said, that we would just pause and reflect. And I think we need to do that as we were looking at all of this today. We need to pause and reflect, which leads us into some life response I think that we can have. I'm going to suggest three different life responses. One is to trust in, another is to clean up, and a third is to reach out. So let's look at those three different responses we can have as we reflect on these passages. The first one is to trust in our sovereign God. I mean, we can get disturbed by what we experience in life. It's easy to get disturbed when we look at what is to come. But we need to trust in our sovereign God. Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2 talks about how God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and that's going to happen one day, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. We don't have to fear 
if we are diagnosed with a disease. We don't have to fear if a loved one is taken from us. We don't have to fear if we lose our job. We don't have to fear the global burning that is ahead. We need to trust in our sovereign God. Another life response I think he would have us to have is to clean up our spiritual act. You know, as we've looked at truth today, we need to remember the truth is supposed to affect us. Truth is supposed to change us. And I find it easy to drift into spiritual lethargy. Thus, I need the word of God to wake me up a little bit. I want to suggest an exercise that I think would help all of us. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, which lists out the deeds of the flesh. And then if verses 22 and 23, it lists out the fruit of the Spirit. Go there and reflect on those things before the Lord. Look at a listing of the deeds of the flesh. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit evaluate your heart. It's very likely there will need to be some confession from some sinful attitudes and actions maybe that we've drifted into. There will no doubt need to be some renewed reliance on the Holy Spirit. God, I want you to develop those traits in my life. And then the third life response as we reflect on all this would be to reach out to your world, to reach out to your world. You know, we are not called as followers of Jesus to retreat. We're not called to withdraw. We're not called to disengage from the culture. Philippians 2.15, rather we are called to be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. You know, we're not to withdraw and disengage. We are to be shining as stars in our culture. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus put it this way. He says, let your light shine before men, before men, not that you've, you know, moved to the mountains somewhere, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We need to reach out to our world. We cannot control people's response to the light, but we can, can faithfully shine. We can share the light of the gospel. And I strongly want to encourage you to do something this week, and that would be to make it a priority this next week to pray for one person that you know who does not know Jesus Christ and pray for them all week long. There are literally tens of millions in our generation who are unaware of and unconcerned about coming judgment. Let's pray for some of those people. And I just want to encourage you in all of this. God can use you. He can use you. His plan is to use you and to use me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God. We thank you for the incredible truth that is here, the startling truth that is here. And then the amazing thing, I'll go to my grave always being amazed, is how you want to use people like me to shine your light to other folks. May we be men and women who are honoring you with our life and sharing the good news of deliverance from judgment 
through Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. 